Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we need order in the court today, as we judge <laughs> the saga of Horth and the Home Dwellers. This is going to be a tricky one to rate. It, it really is. I, I don't know if we're going to be as close on our final ratings as we usually are. I don't know. I, I feel like I usually have a pretty good idea of where you stand on these, but mm-hmm. you've been uncharacteristically quiet about your opinions on this one. Uh, well, but that's that's coming up later. I, I, I would say I've been, I've, <laughs> I would say I've been quiet on this one in part because I'm not a hundred percent sure <laughs> what I want to do with this one. Uh-huh. Well, it's something but, you got to really think about. But maybe we can uh, maybe we can help you make up your mind today because there's a lot to do before we get to the final rating center of this Tootsie Pop. <laughs> yes. Well, I have been just so you know hiding clues about my final rating in every episode, little hints, little uh, nuggets. Ah. Uh. No, you've been you've really. been national treasuring our podcast, <laughs> or have I? That, that's not how it works. You have to, you have to hide clues on the back of a two dollar bill or something. Or do I? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> welcome back. Uh, this is our fourth and final episode on Horth Saga, and we're going to be going through our usual seven categories: best bloodshed, body count, nicknames, notable witticisms, outlawry, thingmen, and final ratings which Andy may or may not have been Da Vinci coding for the last three episodes. Nah, I'd rather be Nicolas Cage than Tom Hanks. Oh, nonsense. At all least due in, res- in movies. Right. Now, all not due respect to Mr. Cage, I'm not sure Nicolas Cage wouldn't rather be Tom Hanks if he had the choice. <laughs> Although I don't think Nicolas Cage would really agree with you. Well. Uh, you ready to get started? Yep, hit the button. Best Bloodshed. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, Okay, this is our category for selecting the most eye-catching moment of violence in the saga. It doesn't have to be the bloodiest moment. We're we're looking for panache as well as splash. All right, so uh, what are we going to do about this saga? (laughs) I mean, the body count for this one is impressive, which we'll be talking about in a minute. But generally speaking, our author has offered us bloodshed wholesale rather than offering a lot of really memorable moments. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, there aren't a lot of those handcrafted artisanal killings, is what you're saying. Yes, that's I. I'm a man who appreciates the finer things in life, John. <laughs> well, uh, I can't offer you fine china and gray poupon, but uh, we'll see if we can't find something to satisfy your refined bloodshed palate. Is uh, gray poupon really the most current reference you had from like 1986? <laughs> Look, I don't know what condiments rich people are using these days. <laughs> But I can offer you one or two of those artisanal killings. All right. Uh, let's start with Horth's friend Gear, who goes for a stroll one morning in Norway and runs into a group of troublemakers uh, led by Queen Gunild's treasurer Arnthor. I remember this. And after they taunt and bully Gear for a bit, Arnthor tries to steal Gear's cloak. And Gear, who's had about enough of this, whips out his sword and chops off Arnthor's arm above the elbow, presumably leaving the severed hand still grasping his cloak. I don't recall the hand hanging onto the cloak like some horror movie. I, I said presumably. Oh, right. <laughs> anyway, all of uh, Arnthor's friends crowd around him trying to staunch the wound or are just too stunned to react. And since no one's paying attention to him anymore, Gear just puts his cloak back on and wanders off back to his lodgings. Not bad. Not bad. I like the detail about Gear just walking away while everyone's busy with Arnthor. That's all right. Yeah, no, I, and I doubt that's our winner, but I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, our next candidate is Sigurd. Torfi's foster whatever, who's nominated for 
Foster whatever. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about that when we get to nicknames. Yeah. Uh, Sigurd's nominated for his escape from Bjorn Blasida's six guards while being held prisoner on a raiding ship. Mm-hmm. Now, despite being bound hand and foot, Sigurd manages his escape by offering to tell his captors a poem. He sings soothingly to them until all six men fall asleep, at which point he crawls over to a most convenient axe and cuts his hands free. Unfortunately, his ankles are bound with iron fetters, and Sigurth has to force the fetters off his feet, tearing off both his heels in the process. It's still a really disturbing image. Yeah, it is. Tearing them off completely. That's Yeah, uh, presumably leaving behind some very distinctive and abbreviated footprints when he <laughs> escapes. Uh, but before he does escape, he kills all six guards and leaves them on the ship before jumping into the water and swimming away. And that is salt water, too. So Seagirt <laughs> yes. is made of tough stuff. It's very clear. Yeah, everything but his heels, apparently. Yeah. Uh, all right, what have you got? Well, both of those are decent John, but neither, to be honest, is terribly interesting. He tore his heels off, Andy. I said it was decent, but you've served up a tomato soup of bloodshed so far. Not great, but <laughs> decent. My first candidate is a bit more spicy. Like a, a, a nice chicken tortilla soup, if we're comparing these bloodsheds to soup. Okay, I want to be very clear that we're not comparing these to soup. <laughs> <laughs> You're comparing it to soup. And I'm Fair also enough. pretty sure that the base for chicken tortilla soup is, in fact, tomato. It depends so on I'm how you make it. I'm not entirely sure I understand your metaphor, sir. At the but very least, on. it's more than just uh, I tomatoes. I see. Um, anyway, so remember when uh, Kjartan was ferrying people from Gersholm to the mainland? Uh, delivering them to their deaths, yes. Hard to forget, yes. Well, uh-huh. I think Horth's handling of Kjartan deserves consideration, at least, for Best Bloodshed. Uh-huh. Because when they neared the shore and Horth spotted Ger's body floating near a scary, he turned on Kjartan and sliced him in two lengthwise, all the way down to his belt, <sighs> yeah. through a double male cloak. Now, that's an impressive cut, and while it's almost certainly an impossible feat of strength and swordsmanship... I think it's worthy of consideration for Best Bloodshed. It reminds me of the end of Rob Roy, where Tim Roth's character gets a real <laughs> taste of Liam Neeson's longsword. All right, I'll, I'll give it to you. Undeniably, that's a pretty good one, and I love that scene yeah. too. Uh, it's definitely if I'm if I'm picking ways to be bisected by a sword, that's probably my second least favorite option. Your second least favorite. Well, what's worse yep. than being cut in half from your head or shoulder to your belt? Well, the sword reaching my belt from the other direction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's fair enough. Yeah, I'll go with you on that. Uh, All right. Uh, My last candidate is from right near the end of the saga. It's the chaotic scene when Thorolf Stiff is about to kill Ref the Gothi in his bed, but hesitates. Oh, yes. And we did a dramatic reenactment of this moment in the last episode. So I think I'm going to let the saga author tell it this time. Okay. Uh, So as he's standing there, he, he stops himself. He hesitates. And Thorbjörg Katla, Ref's mother, spots him standing over her son in the bed and calls out, Wake up, my son! The devil is standing over you and will kill you! Then Ref tried to stand, and at that moment Thorolf struck with Sotty's sword low on both his legs, one where the calf was thinnest and the other on the ankle. After that, Thorolf jumped out of the bed closet onto the floor. Then Thorbjörg came toward him and grabbed him and pulled him under her and bit his windpipe in two, and that killed him. So in that moment, we have uh, Ref. There's a lot going on, uh, Andy. All of it's great. Yeah. Uh, Ref is maimed. Uh, we have a thwarted killing, but a maiming, a flying tackle, and an elderly sorceress biting the throat out of her son's would-be assassin. 
Yes. What more can you ask for? I mean, that's a that's a nice bowl of borscht you've just served up there, <laughs> complete with the nice red color. You were just gonna you were gonna ride this soup metaphor right into the ground. No, okay. I'm not. That's that's the limit of my soup knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a really good one, and it's going to be hard to beat. <laughs> Nothing. It's a borscht with beets. I, no? Wow, that's I, I I you know what? I'm not even going to acknowledge that. Well, I I do have another one. I almost feel bad bringing it up, but we should at least acknowledge the slaying. You didn't feel of, bad bringing up the beat. <laughs> I mean, it's his saga thing. That's what we do. Yeah, here. fair enough. Fair enough. But yeah, I wanna I wanna uh, call up the slaying of Bjorn Blausida. Oh yeah, yeah, that's definitely worth mentioning. Right. So Bjorn Blausida's five ships have been attacked by Horde's forces to avenge the assault on Sigurd Torvi's foster brother or son or whatever uh, the previous day. <laughs> And as the battle raged on, Horth and Gare made their way onto Bjorn's ship and started hacking away at everyone they saw. Bjorn spotted them and rushed forward to engage Horth, and just as Bjorn slashed with his sword, Horth leaped backwards over the boom towards the bow of the ship. And Bjorn's two-edged swords hit the boom where Horth had just been and stuck firmly into the wood. And seeing an opening, Horth then swung Sotanaut both hard and swiftly at Bjorn's exposed midsection, slicing him into... Just below the ribs. I'm sensing a theme with your candidates today, Andy. I mean, listen, when a whole person suddenly becomes two halves of a person, I tend to pay attention. Now, (laughs) those moments almost always make their way into Best Bloodshed, and sometimes they even win. Probably not today. Well, probably not. As much as I do like Horth's showmanship, men getting to cut in two is a pretty common trope in the sagas at this point. Mm -hmm. So while it might have impressed us at the start of our journey through the sagas, I'm going to need something a little bit more extravagant, something more clever, something more Uh downright horrific to really catch my eye. (laughs) No, I think I I mentioned in our last episode that Thorbjörn Katla chewing the throat out of her sons. uh, I think I mentioned in the last episode that Thorbjörn Katla chewing the throat out of her sons would be assassin. That should win Best Bloodshed, and mm-hmm. I think the listeners agree with me. I don't see any reason to change my mind on that. Um, yeah, no, I, I think uh, I don't. I don't think any of us are in disagreement on this one. And you heard it here, folks. Reading the sagas not only desensitizes you to extreme violence; it apparently makes you thirsty for more. No, no, wait a minute. Now, I didn't say mm-hmm. I thirst for real violence of any kind, but <laughs> as an audience member, I just want something I haven't seen before. Yeah, you've Maybe. been desensitized. Yes, the same bowl of soup every night, John. It kind of gets boring. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Did you watch Ratatouille recently or something? Like, what is. No, I have no idea. I I really don't want soup right now. It's too hot here. I'm not going to argue if we want to give Best Bludgeon to Thorbjörn Katla. I really think it's. uh, It's a great moment, but it's not really an exciting innovation on the part of the author. No. Awkwardly for us, we awarded A.L. Scott Grimson Best Bloodshed in our last judgment episode. For doing exactly the same thing to Otley the Short. That's true. Who would have thought two in a row? <laughs> now, this author definitely seems to borrow a lot from other sagas. And I know we mentioned a few of the similarities that pop up between Horus Saga and the other Outlaw Sagas. But there's a lot of other stuff that seems to be lifted directly from other sagas. like Just like this, maybe. Yeah. Now, one could argue that the throat-biting scenes are just parallel thinking. But once you look at other scenes, like the slaying of Bjorn Blasada, it becomes clear that the author is seeking inspiration from other sources. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because one of our listeners, Owen McGlynn, he picked up on that in the second episode mm-hmm. of Horde Saga and wrote in to point out some parallels with Njal's Saga. And he did a nice little detailed list for us. Um, he noted that the scene where Sigurd Torfi's foster brother is captured by Bjorn Blasada's men, but not ex- executed by, uh, because night fell, remember. 
that mm-hmm. one's very similar to Grimm and Helge Njalsson's near-deadly encounter with Earl Halkin, right down right. to the conveniently placed axe by which they make their escape. Yeah, and I'm glad he brought it up because we, we didn't mention it at the time, but we probably should have. Yeah. Uh, well, we did make the same exact jokes as we went through the scene both times. <laughs> did we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was another Dread Pirate Robert situation, and we really couldn't miss the chance to repeat ourselves. <laughs> I mean, let's just take that as evidence uh, of how similar the two episodes are. Yes. And, of course, how truly sharp we are as hosts. Right? We wouldn't, we're not going to let a straight line go begging. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though the episodes are separated by many years... We didn't miss a beat when the opportunity to be unoriginal and rehash our old bits came up. <laughs> I mean, we are the the best at rehashing old bits without <laughs> even knowing that we're doing it. Um, I'm not sure that's a good thing, but well, it's the reality that we live in. So, Owen oh, also drew that's some... the soup we swim in, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Now, Owen drew uh, some very clear parallels also between the death of Bjorn Blausida, which I described earlier, and Gunnar's fight with Halgrim in Chapter 30 of Nail Saga. And mm-hmm. this one is really, really close, John. Um, mm-hmm. And to prove it, uh, I've got my copy of Nail Saga right here. But before I read the relevant scene, why don't you crack your copy of Horror Saga that you have there, open to Chapter 17, and okay. read the death of Bjorn to us again. All right. Uh, just a second. Okay, here uh, here it is. Uh, 17. Later in the day, Horth went up to the ship where Bjorn Blazada was and Gear right after him. They each went along one side of the ship and slew every human being before the mast. Bjorn Blazada then ran to oppose Horth. Horth had then come after the mast and Bjorn swung at him with a two-edged sword. Horth did not bring his shield in front of him, jumping backward instead over the step of the mast. The sword went into the boom so forcefully that neither of its inlaid steel edges were visible. And when Horth saw how Bjorn leaned forward with the stroke, he struck him so powerfully and quickly across the shoulders that he cut him in two below the breastbone with the sword he took from Sauti. Okay, it's all very familiar to the recap that I just yep. gave, but that's a word-for-word yep. uh, recap of the translation. Now, mm-hmm. now here's the scene from Chapter 30 of Njal Saga. A fierce battle got underway. They fought long and the losses were great. Gunnar killed many men. Holgrim and his brother leaped onto Gunnar's ship, and Gunnar turned to face him. Holgrim thrust at him with his halberd. A boom lay across the ship, and Gunnar made a backwards leap over it. His shield was still in front of the boom, and Holgrim's halberd went through it and into the boom. Gunnar then struck at Holgrim's arm, and the arm was crippled, but the sword did not bite. The halberd fell. Gunnar grabbed it and thrust through Holgrim. Okay, so both sagas have two men boarding the ship and working mm-hmm. their way along the sides toward the big boss. That's right. Uh, they both then have an impressive backward leap from the hero over a boom and the weapon getting stuck in the boom. Yes, and that then leaves an opening for the hero to kill the bad guy. So mm-hmm. now there are some obvious differences here. Uh, in Yal Saga, it's the bad guys who board Gunnar's ship rather than the other way around in Horde Saga. And mm-hmm. Horde's killing a Bjorn is... It's a bit more theatrical than Gunnar's handling of Halgrim. That's true, but it's it is the is the it's the origin story, right? It's how Gunnar gets his halberd. Yes, so that's it's right. ultimately a more impactful scene in terms of narrative significance. That's that's totally fair. N- now, John, why are we spending all this time pointing out just how derivative much of what we read in Horde Saga really is? Oh, I could keep going. I mean, there's all kinds of other derivations of this scene. I mean, we've, there's something very similar with uh, Onan Treefoot uh, mm-hmm. fighting against the Vikings and using his uh, the stump that he's leaning against to capture the sword of his oh, enemy. Oh, yeah. 
And for that matter, uh, any number of Hollywood movies or television course. shows feature a guy swinging a sword, getting it stuck <laughs> in a tree or something, and then the hero uh, fighting back. Right. So you're making a good point here. What are we doing? Well, I mean, the first thing to point out, I guess, is that all literature, film, art, or whatever is derivative to an extent. So we can't really mm-hmm. penalize it for just that. And, and I think this is especially true of medieval literature in general. So it's not really surprising that the author of a saga would borrow a scene or a trope from another source. But simply cut and pasting scenes from other sources, it really doesn't impress anyone. There's a good lesson for students out there. An artist is really judged on their ability to adapt their sources or their inspiration, to comment on it in new and interesting ways, and to, to make it their own, really. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing to point out is that later sagas like Horde and the Home Dwellers really reflect an evolution in the development of saga writing. Because as tastes changed, so too did the conventions of composition. Mm-hmm. You'll find a lot of borrowing in later sagas as the authors adapt old motifs and characters and set pieces for a new audience in the same way that the three different trilogies of Star Wars, for example, are adaptations <clears throat> for three different generations. So they feel very different, even oh. though they're similar. You just had to throw Star Wars in there for me, didn't you? I'm trying to speak your language, John. Soup didn't work, so I thought I'd jump into (laughs) something more familiar. You know, you have to find a way to my heart somehow. That's right, yeah. Anyway, the point is that a saga like Horth Saga will appropriate plenty of material from previous generations of saga writing. So I don't think we can really judge it on that feature alone. Instead, we're going to have to judge it on what the author accomplishes through the borrowings and through the saga as a whole. Right, which, of course, is what we'll be doing in our final rating section mm-hmm. of the judgments. That was a nice like little taste, before, wasn't it? I'm, uh, I'm interested to find out how you score this one. You know, I'm really interested. To, I know you said you're not sure what I'm going to do. I, I'm not really sure what you're going to do either. I haven't got a good <laughs> sense. But, I, you know, why don't, we, I, why don't we write down what we think the other person's going to do? <laughs> well, right now? Yeah, yeah. I'm going I'm to right. write on. All I got right. a little index card here. Here I go. Here I go. I'm going to write a number. And we'll see how close I am on yours. So here it is. Okay. I'm writing your number down. I'm folding it up. And I'm putting it right here on the shelf. Yep. And it's, I've got mine right over here. It's ready to go. Excellent. We'll see. We'll see how close uh, we are when we get down great. to it. All right. <laughs> now, um, of course, that's going to have to wait. We're still in the best bloodshed section, aren't we? <laughs> we stumbled into yeah. a rather lengthy digression. Yeah. And we need to find a way out. Did we even officially award Best Bloodshed yet? No, we didn't. Uh, we danced <laughs> around it. Uh, but it was clear that uh, Thorbjörn Kotla was going to walk away with the trophy today, I think. Well, excellent then. Uh, come on up here, Thorbjörn Kotla, and accept your award for Best Bloodshed in the saga of Horde and the Home Dwellers. And as she exits the stage, clenching the award in her famous choppers, the room bursts into applause. <sighs> oh. What a classy gal. All right, <laughs> on to our next category. Body, Body count. In this section, we provide you with a tally of all the untimely deaths in the saga. While we might bicker a little behind the scenes over what counts as untimely or how to resolve an ambiguity in the saga's own count, of which there are inevitably quite a few, yes. uh, we always come to an agreement and find an official saga thing body count for each saga. That's right. And if anyone was wondering what part of this podcast takes the longest, well, it's usually the body count section. Because (laughs) in addition to keeping track of the count while we read the saga individually, John and I then meet up before each judgment episode to run through each death one more time with a fine-tooth comb, page by page. 
And like any time you uh, drag a fine tooth comb through things, it can get a little messy. Especially with so many bodies. <laughs> but uh, like you said, there's always a resolution. And sometimes that's because we genuinely agree on the count. And sometimes it's because, well, we're just tired of arguing with each other. <laughs> and which one was it this time? I believe that I messed my count tally up while we were going through it by doing uh, little tick marks. And I didn't realize until it was too late that that wasn't a good system. So uh, I just went with your final count. Uh, that's not the kind of quality assurance the listeners were hoping for, Andy. Uh, but it's the kind that they've come to expect, John. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you on that. And since it's your own personal confirmed number this time around, why don't you do the honors and tell us Oof. how many untimely deaths occurred in the saga of Whore than the Home Dwellers? All right. Uh, well, I got to say, it is an impressive number. Uh, and there indeed. were quite a few things that we had to discuss and things we had to sort of decide whether to count or not. But no matter what you do, this is going to be a big one. Uh, up till now, our highest total body count was Ale Saga with 407. That's a lot. Second place, Nyal Saga with 221. Greater Saga comes in third with 146.5. Mm-hmm. And I uh, I believe Alehood came in last with zero. So lame <laughs> Alehood. Yeah. Uh, now, Horth Saga isn't going to come anywhere close to Alehood, right? There's a lot of deaths in this saga. A whole island of outlaws was slaughtered on the shores. Right, and exactly. The, the the saga tells us that nearly 60 of the home dwellers were killed that day. Mm-hmm. And the story is full of skirmishes and battles where the bodies really pile up. Okay, well, stop beating around the bush, John. What's the number? Uh, well, I invite you to go back and listen to some other body count sections. You're the, uh, you're the king of the slow reveal, my friend. Oh, well, maybe a prince, but king, please. Well, the body count for the saga of Horth and the Home Dwellers comes in at 220. Woo! One below Nyal Saga. And that puts it in third place for highest body count in the sagas that we've done so far, which is not bad. That's right. Uh, third place in body count is pretty good. Uh, from a given point of view, I guess. From a <laughs> well, you know, if, actuarial if point it. of view, it's pretty horrific. Yes, it uh, is. But now what about the uh, the BCDM, Andy? That's the true measure of a saga's body count density. I'm glad you asked, John. The body count density measurement is a simple calculation of bodies per Hrofenkels, which we arrive at by dividing the number of untimely deaths in a saga by its Hrofenkels. It's a universal standard, really. Absolutely. And with a body count like 220, we need to consider the possibility, John, that Horde Saga is going to rank pretty high in the Master BCDM list. Yeah, it is. Uh, Greenland, Greenlander Saga is still the champ there, right? It is. It is. The Saga of the Greenlanders had a BCDM of 70.42, a number yeah, which yeah. has seemed to us to be all but unbeatable by the, the rest of the sagas that we've been reading. Right. Ale Saga did well with body count, but it's such a long saga that its BCDM number really suffered. So despite having over 400 deaths, it's just too long. Um, it's still in second place, though, with a BCDM of 56.53. And third place is currently held by the saga of Ref the Sly, whose 64 deaths over 1.22 Raven kills gave it an impressive BCDM of 52.46. So it pays to kill a lot of people. And be short about it. And to do so briefly, yes. Yeah, I, gotta be I get quick. the feeling. Yeah, I get the feeling that Horth Saga is going to do very well here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got as many deaths as Nyal Saga, but it's a mere fraction of the length. Yes, yes. Uh, wasn't Horth Saga like two Hraven kills long? Uh, two point zero eight Hraven kills by your count. Yeah. And so, if we trust that number and put two hundred and twenty over, Maybe if. <laughs> 
If we put 220 over 2.08, you get an impressive BCDM of 105.77. 105.77. Yes, it's the little saga that could. I think I kill. I think I kill. I think I kill. <laughs> and that means we've got a new champ. Uh, 105.77 is significantly more than the Greenlander Saga's 70.42. Yep. Uh, we really didn't know if that number could be beat. Well, break out the champagne. We've got a new champ. Uh, I don't know if this matters to our listeners at all, but this is a pretty exciting deal for Andy and me. It um, is. So we raise a glass to the saga of Horror Than the Home Dwellers. Cheers. Congratulations. Nicknames. So here we are at the Nicknames Award, an investigation of the great nicknames, bynames, aliases, and gnomes de plume of Horth Saga. What do you got, Giant? Gnomes de plume doesn't seem quite right. They're not they're not writing anything. Gnomes de guerre, maybe? I mean, we could argue about that if you want, but I was on a roll. It's going to eat into your time if we... <laughs> I mean, I think we have time. Uh, I, I still want to talk to you about your attitude regarding Nicolas Cage and Tom Hanks, but... <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, I didn't realize the Academy Orchestra was going to play me off if I went long. Well, you know, uh, it is so I'll, here. I'll move it along. Uh, so in this saga, I would say this one's a little underwhelming when it comes to nicknames. Uh, there are 36 nicknamed figures overall. Okay. But once once I filtered it down to the ones worth examining, we're at more like eight or so. Now that's, you know, it's respectable. And I kind of like that. If we get it down to yeah. four, I think I'd be even happier. Yeah. Well, I didn't say eight great ones. Okay. Uh, but I did rid us of the people who we've seen multiple times before, like Ilugi the Black or Gunnild the Mother of Kings or Harold Greycloak. Uh, I also got rid of the usual assortment of simple descriptors, like Ilugi the Red, Magnus the Priest, Sigurth Snout. Uh, we also got rid of place names, right? Grim the Hologolander, uh, Hrolf the Gitlander, and Hvamthor. Are you just trying to list out all 38 of them or whatever I like the to get was? as many as I can, 36, and okay. I like to get as many as I can in there. Yeah, well, all right. Uh, I also decided to skip some interesting names that don't tell us much uh, that we haven't already covered elsewhere. A name like Thorolf Butter. Mm. Uh, Thorolf Stiff. No idea what that can mean. Uh, or Ulfheim the Shapeshifter. Uh, but that still leaves us with a crew that includes... Okay. Bjorn Goldbearer. Or Bjorn Goldberry, uh, who was one of the early settlers to Iceland. He's Horv's paternal grandfather in this saga, and he also shows up very briefly in Njal's saga because of his son Theostal's friendship with Hoskel Dalkolson. Okay. That's about all we get about Bjorn in these sagas, but his nickname has two possible connotations. One is that he was a tribute collector at some point, uh, probably in Norway before his move to Iceland, the gold bearer. Uh, the other is that Bjorn was one of the lucky few who managed to escape Harold Fairhair and sailed to Iceland with full pockets. A lot of people arrived in Iceland with little to their names, but some men managed to liquidate their wealth and set themselves up in Iceland as wealthy chieftains. And in fact, Bjorn is a chieftain. He passes that chieftaincy on to his oldest son, Grimkel, and thus Grimkel the Gothi. Uh, Bjorn was an important man in the settlement generation, actually. Uh, I said he's not mentioned much in the sagas, but his settlement is described in the same chapter of Landama book, as Skalagrim Kveldovsons. Yeah. Uh, so I read the nickname Goldbearer as a not necessarily complimentary reference to Bjorn's wealth, which might mark him out as an opportunist who fled Norway with wealth other men lacked. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Now, our second gold-based name is Thorstein Gullknapper, 
uh, or gold button. Uh, I wanted to bring this one up because it shows how translators can subtly shape the experience of reading a saga. Thorsten's a shifty guy with no real allegiance. And as we said in the saga, he's part of a tradition of unworthy men killing outlaw heroes. His name is Gold Knapper, uh, which entered English as knob, as in doorknob. Hmm. The word in Old Norse can mean either button or knob. Again, it's a subtle difference, but the slang connotations of calling someone a knob in English, as opposed to the name button, does change how we might think of this guy even before we get to know him. Hmm. So I'm going to change. I'm going to move that we change his name to Gold Knob. Well, now that's assuming that in Icelandic, calling someone a knob has some kind of significance. No, I'm I'm looking for the connotation in English, right? That I'm saying how a translator can subtly change the way you read a saga. Uh-huh. Right. A translation of the of this name as knob would give us a very different idea of who this person might be. Okay. Well, what do you think the saga author intends? I think I've made my point. Uh huh. No, my question here is not – I mean, again, all I can do is restate what I've just said. I thought you might have something uh, more to add because I think it's – No, there's uh, nothing else it's, I think it's pretty flimsy. Go on to your next one. My, the, <laughs> he won't be winning. Do you want to actually like deal with this or no? No, I just want to call into question the things that you're doing. I don't really have any commentary to add. Great. <laughs> Thank God you're here. <laughs> uh, anyway – uh, my point is that it's an interesting sort of angle to take on the character, given what we know of him, to give him an English nickname yeah, yeah, that yeah. connotes that character. I think so. Great. <laughs> Who's next? Next is Thordrum, a craftswoman, <laughs> Smithcona. Uh, this name is pretty straightforwardly Smithwoman, uh, but when her nickname is given in the saga, it's immediately followed by, and she was adept at sorcery. Mm-hmm. So the craft Thorgrima excels at is pretty clearly magic. Yes, I agree. Uh, and of course, that pays off in the saga at the end of the story when she meets Thorbjörn Katla and they destroy one another in a witch's duel that I will never forgive our author for not describing as part of the story. I know. it's That is a tragedy. Uh, the idea that the next morning you just find chunks of these two women all over the landscape <laughs> right, yeah. and that nobody thinks anything of it and then sweeps them up and buries them in a single mound together. I feel like there's an entire saga to be told about that story. There sure is. It's great. <laughs> or at least a good-sized powder. Uh, Thorsten Oxgode, or Oxnobrod, is another minor figure in the saga. Uh, he's the guy whose ferry Horth steals when he needs to move all of his followers out to Gearsholm. I honestly don't remember whether we even mentioned him by name in the saga. Yeah, we did. Uh, oh, good. Okay. Uh, so his name, Oxgoad, has the same word, a broad, that we translated as spur for the nickname of Broad Helgi, who appeared in several sagas already. Mm-hmm. Uh, Helgi's name came from attaching a metal spike to his bull's head so it could kill a rival. <laughs> I remember you didn't like that. Uh, no, I don't, I don't much care for that. Thorsten's name appears to be a more sedate reference, uh, probably to prodding oxen while plowing fields. Mm-hmm. It's a workman's name. But the fact that he also has a sideline as a ferryman suggests a second possible use for an ox pole as an aid to ferrying people across <laughs> shallow waters. <laughs> a now, ferryman admit, with an ox pole, you say? Absolutely. Uh, now, that might be a stretch, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, uh, my job is to put these things out there. All right. Uh, next up, we have Helga Jarl's daughter. Helga oh, wait the a Earl's minute. Now, daughter. Why? That's not even a nickname. 
It is a nickname. It's a nickname that doesn't. It means exactly what it says on the tin. Come on. Right? She's the daughter of Earl Harold and the sister of Earl Haraldson. What it signifies, I think, is what's important here. Horv is a chieftain's son, but he's also been abandoned by his father and is living as an itinerant adventurer mm-hmm. when he meets Helga. The difference in their status would be, from a Norwegian perspective, pretty significant. Uh, more than that. <laughs> yeah. Right, absolutely. But an Icelander would see them as equals. Mm. Right? They're both the children of men of the leadership caste of their countries. Uh, so the son of a Gothi, the daughter of an earl. Why not? Okay. Uh, more to the point, Helga's name follows her into Iceland and continues to mark her out as a high-status figure worthy of respect. And lastly, I just like the sound of it. I mean, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on uh, that. Well, that's, you know, we're considering best nicknames. Doesn't have to be the most fascinating research project. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mentioned earlier that we'd have to discuss Sigurd Torfi's Foster whatever when we got to nicknames. Yes. I'm a man of my word, Andy. All right. Uh, the thing about Sigurd is that he's only ever described as the Fostri of Torfi. Mm-hmm. The Foster what is never established. That's right. Now, you and I read different translations of this saga, which is always a good time. And one of the differences we ran across is that your translator called him Torvi's foster brother. That's right. And my translator, Robert Kellogg, consistently calls him Torvi's foster son. And we got into our own little argument right. <laughs> about that. We were confused about that for yeah. a while. Now, there's arguments to be made either way. The strongest argument for foster brother is that we're told that Sigurd is raised, quote, with Torvi. But the text is ambiguous about whether that means he's being raised at the same time as Torvi or just living with him. And the argument for Foster's son is that Torvi treats Sigurd very much as an inferior or a child, especially in his rage after Sigurd hides the baby Thorbjörg. Uh, I'd also make the argument that the word Fostri by itself connotes fosterling, uh, i.e. a child rather than a sibling. But it's ultimately unknowable, which means I probably just wasted about an hour of research time and a couple of minutes of this podcast. That's how but it goes. such is life. Yeah, yeah, well, so it goes. Uh, we also have Thorgerd Alterbride, or Horgabruder. Uh, this is one of my favorite kind of names. It seems interesting for one reason and then turns out to have a whole different story behind it. Okay, now you've got me. There's the hook. Thorgerd is a divinity. Right? She's the household god that Grim Kelgothi speaks to shortly before his death. That's right. Now, the name Altar Bride is more correctly translated as Bride of the Worship Place. Uh, but where this gets interesting is that Thorgerd shows up as a god in a whole lot of different contexts. She's in Njal Saga. Do you remember that uh, that building full of gods that was destroyed? I at do. One point? I do. That's she's one of the gods in that uh, in that temple. And here is yet another uh, echo of Njal Saga within absolutely. This one. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, she also appears in Faryinga Saga. She's in the Saga of the Yom's Vikings. She's in Kettle's Saga. And she's in a handful of other texts as well. But when she shows up, her name is usually Holgabruder, not Horgabruder. She's the bride of Holgi, ah. uh, which is usually interpreted as an eponym for uh, Halogaland in northern Norway. So does that mean that this uh, saga author is mis- has misread one of his manuscripts? Well, or that the manuscript okay, mis- miswrote it? It's entirely possible that these two versions of the name started as an error, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're only one letter different from each other. Uh, now, Hologaland is also associated with giants and trolls. And in fact, in multiple sources, Thorgerd is actually called the troll of Holgi rather than a bride of Holgi. Hmm. In fact, Thorgerd seems to sit somewhere between the monstrous and the divine, 
which actually makes a great deal of sense for a pagan household god being depicted by Christian writers. Mm -hmm. So her name has a lot of complexity there. Uh, now, I do have to find a moment to include two beard names from the saga, of course. Uh, Thorvald Blackbeard and Thorgir Beltbeard. I appreciate both names, but of course, Blackbeard is really just Darkbeard for the same reasons that we're going to give for uh, Bjorn in a moment. Uh, so I'd rather add Thorgir Beltbeard and his long, long chin tresses to the list of nominees, if only because it's been a while since we've had a beard-based nickname that suggests a truly luxurious set of whiskers. Yes. All right. Now, our final candidate is Bjorn Blackside. There you or go. Or Blausida. Now, we already talked about this one in our episode covering his appearance, uh, episode 30B, I think. Yes. But we should at least acknowledge that it's a pretty good nickname. Yeah, not bad. The name the name Blausida means dark side or blue or black or whatever the translator chooses. Uh, we've talked about the possibility of a reference to Bjorn's hair or beard, but I'm not buying that one. But we can also consider whether the reference might not be to something equally prosaic. Other nicknames, like Bjorn Ironside, Yarnsida, refer euphemistically to a man's armor or to his luck in avoiding harm. So Blausida, by extension, could refer to black or dark-colored armor, right? a dark-armored man. Hmm. Now, of course, this is a, I'm going to take a little bit of a flyer here, but Sida can also mean side in the same sense that it's used in English, right? Uh, the Norse and English are, agree on this, that side can refer to a coast or shoreline, right? The way we would say riverside or oceanside. Okay. Now that opens up the possibility of a reference to the famously black volcanic sand beaches of Iceland. Hmm. In fact, I kind of like the idea this refers to Bjorn being from a place with a notably dark sand or soil. But he's not from there. Uh, well... But I'm, I'm I'm not saying from Iceland, but from a place that has a similarly dark uh, sand or soil. Okay. But I'm not going to insist on this because, Andy, you actually, and this might be a first on Saga thing, but you wanted to try to solve this one. So I uh, yield my remaining time to the gentleman from Mississippi. Well, I, you know, I, I have mentioned to you before, John, that my first thought was that Bjorn must have some killer sideburns, dark, black, uh -huh. bushy sideburns. But yeah, uh, you weren't buying that. Nope. <laughs> but I'm going to stand by that one all the same. I think it's a good idea. Uh, but my other idea was inspired by the author's comment that Bjorn's sword sunk into the boom past the two edge strips. Now, mm -hmm. as I've shown on this podcast several times, I don't know jack about Viking Age swords, axes, or material culture in general. Um, and it's, a, a subject about which I share your enthusiastic ignorance. <laughs> yes, but, you know, and we both like the subject a lot. We just chose to study other things, you know. Uh, I studied literature and the social, political, and economic cultures that produced it. So I don't know a lot about swords. Um, but I do know that most swords were made of iron with steel strips added to create a harder or sharper edge. Um, that's mm -hmm. pretty clear. And so the mention of the two edge strips on Bjorn's sword got me thinking that maybe the two steel strips were darker than the iron center. And if that were true, then his nickname Blausida is a descriptor for his sword, which could have dark or black sides. Huh? Hmm. Yeah? Hmm. Hmm. I don't... I, well, <laughs> I, I didn't know if those steel edge strips could actually be darker than the iron core of a sword. So I asked our friend Adam Parsons, the 
official archaeologist and weapons specialist of Saga thing for some more info on this. And oh, <laughs> I don't know if he knows he's the official archaeologist and weapons specialist, but surprise, Adam. Hey, uh, no, we've mentioned Adam a few times on the podcast and we always say that he's worth following. You can check him out on Twitter at eblueaxe or on Instagram where he is at Reproductions, or visit his website, blueaxereproductions.com to see some of his work. It's great stuff. Um, but anyway, mm-hmm. I, I sent my theory over to Adam. Uh, and how did he respond? Is this theory plausible? Uh, no, not not really. Uh, <laughs> he pointed out that the harder, <laughs> higher carbon steel tends to be paler than the less high mm. carbon iron that is used in the pattern welding. Uh, and that means that the hard steel edges should be, they tend to be light and shinier than the lower carbon center in a sword like the one described in Bjorn's possession. Right. So that would mean that Blausi, though, would have nothing to do with Bjorn's sword. Correct. Which means this theory is wrong. Well, I mean, Adam did say that odd effects can happen with pattern welding. Uh, He posted Mm -hmm. two pictures for me. One of a pattern welded sword that he had made with the traditional pattern running down the center and the light mirror-like edges. Um, So that would say no to the the darker sides. But he also showed me a knife that his friend had made for him where the pattern welded center is actually a little bit lighter than the, the edges. Huh. So, I mean, that suggests that it might be possible I think that's the it, it's possible, but very unlikely for a two-edged sword, and I think that's what uh, right. what Adam's getting at. Right. So, uh, myth busted. Myth busted. Yes, uh, or lightly plausible, but they they busted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had a crazy idea, John, but rather than uh-huh. just blindly accepting that my theory was correct, I did test my idea by asking an expert. And I trusted the expert's informed opinion as he shot my theory down. So <laughs> that's kind of how it should work, though, right? Yeah, it's very inspiring. Uh, <laughs> we'll we'll submit that speech to the Academy and see what they think. All right. Uh, ultimately, I'm not sure your idea is any more outlandish than mine, but uh, I don't really know who I'd consult about an expert on beach-based nicknames. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, those are our candidates, Andy. How are we feeling about the options? You know, I, I've got two that I feel pretty good about. I've got two I feel pretty around? good about, too. Uh, and one of them is a very big surprise to me. So I would not have thought that I would suggest Helga, the Earl's daughter, as one mm-hmm. of the candidates, but because mm-hmm. it addresses the class distinctions between the Norwegians and the Icelanders in such an yep. interesting way, I, I'm kind of down with that, uh, but I don't think she should win. I just like that one better than I thought I would. <laughs> um, what, what is your first one that you would... Uh, well, like I said, I've got two. I haven't made a decision yet. I'm willing to be convinced of either of them, so... All right, well, my second one then is Bjorn Blausida, uh, in part because I think Blausida mm. just sounds cool. There's that. Um, It sent me down a long, long rabbit hole uh, in terms of looking uh, up all kinds of things that I was ultimately wrong about. I spent, I'm not lying to you, man. (laughs) I spent at least two and a half days playing with that guy and his nickname. Yeah, Not just the sword stuff, but also his possible ethnicity and uh, blackness or uh, color in the Viking Age Mm -hmm. and tons and tons of stuff. Uh, But I was wrong about most of it. This is the this is the thing that people don't see, right? Yeah. Is the amount of time we spend being uh, being excitedly wrong about things, yes, uh, on our way to something that passes for insight. Yes, but that that is the exciting thing about kind of what we do is we get to spend time being mm-hmm. excited about things we can be wrong about, and we at least have a, a rough sense of how to look for whether we're right or not. <laughs> um, now, here's where we run into a problem, Andy, because uh, I agree with you about Helga the Earl's daughter. Mm. Uh, she was also my second choice. Okay. Uh, 
that I, I like the name, I like the implication of class distinctions and the suggestion, the implicit rejection of that distinction uh, shown by the courtship, the successful courtship of Horth to Helga. Uh, but she was my second choice. Unfortunately, my first choice didn't agree with yours. I liked Thorgard Alterbride. Uh, well, uh, just because I think it's a really interesting name. I do like that one. The reason I don't want that one is because she's a god, god or goddess figure. Hey, it's still a nickname. It is, uh, but you know, we never, we we don't, we're not prejudiced against gods around here. We're not tossing out. I mean, anytime Odin pops up, we're going to be able to get him in here. Does, hey, if he wants to try to come in here and win on fair terms, he's welcome to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but I do like that one. Unfortunately. Where this gets awkward is that neither one of us thinks that Helga, the Earl's daughter, has the best nickname, but it's the only one we both picked. Yeah, which, you know. So. I think we give it to her. I mean. I mean, I'm not terribly you know, impressed with any of these nicknames, to be honest with you. So I Look, I did begin by saying that this saga is not a, it does not shine in the nicknames. And you really uh, brought that to fruition. Wow. Mm. Uh, then I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to. Uh, give it to Helga the Earl's daughter uh, if only so that we can move on to another section that hopefully has more interest there you go (laughs) unfortunately Uh, congratulations Helga (laughs) you've been selected by committee with all of the enthusiasm that that suggests (laughs) notable witticisms now our notable witticism category was created to acknowledge and reward the best one-liners turns of phrase and examples of wit in the sagas but sometimes the award simply goes to someone who made us laugh the hardest. Mm-hmm. And as serious and violent as the sagas can be at times, they almost always alleviate some of the tension through wry understatement and clever quips. That's what we love. Right. Now, I, I feel like we're going to say this a lot with this saga. We already have. But this saga wasn't as witty as some we've read. No. Uh, so once again, our categories are maybe not serving this saga as best we might. But there are still some worthy candidates to consider. I guess so, yeah. And, you know, it happens every once in a while. This isn't the first yeah. saga where we've run into this problem. but uh, yep. and, and it won't be the last. But, yeah, sure. I want to uh, acknowledge at least a few honorable mentions in the saga's poetry before we go ahead. Sure, go ahead, yeah. All right. The, the first honorable mention goes to Soti the Viking, who responded to Horth's arrival in his burial mound with a legitimate question in poetic form. <laughs> As Horth approached to take the treasure, Soti looked at him and said, Why so eager, Horth, to break into the mound dweller's house, though Thor asked it? I have never done harm to you, blood serpent shaker, in my life. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's a good poem. I mean, it may not be the sort of the you know the Oscar Wilde witty kind of poetry, no. but it's. Uh, I like that this undead Viking's first words to Horth are essentially, "What did I ever do to you?" <laughs> exactly right. Situationally, it's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, the other honorable mention is similarly humorous, but only when you really take a step back and think about the situation itself, mm-hmm. because here a very young Thorbjorn Grimkilsdolter. <laughs> <laughs> who Good. couldn't be more than five or six at the time, recites a poem off the top of her head, swearing to one day avenge the slayer of her brother Horth. Mm-hmm. She says, Should I learn that you be slain with weapons or fallen in battle, to that man my bitter counsel shall truly be a sentence of death. Those are some, uh, those are some strong words from a very young girl. Well, as we've seen, Thorbjorg proves to be a remarkable woman. Mm-hmm. But again, the poem itself is quite serious. It's a little girl threatening to have someone killed in the yep. future. 
The situation's only humorous when you think of it. You step back and you think about those words coming out of a little sweet child's mouth. Uh, Okay, so those are our honorable mentions. Yeah. Uh, Do we have any real candidates for notable witticism? Uh, I do. I want to nominate Indridi, Thorbjorg's husband, who felt so confident about the deaths of Hord's wife and children that he promised to provide for and protect them if they were to somehow show up on his doorstep. He's then immediately dumbfounded when Thorbjörg pulls them out from behind the curtain and expects him to stay true to his word. And Indri the shakes. It's like he's his, never read a saga before. I know, right? <laughs> so Indri the shakes his head and says, "Well, I've opened my mouth plenty wide now, but still, it is best for a man to keep his word." Again, <laughs> not the wittiest, but situationally very, very funny. Uh, uh-huh. How about you? What is uh, what is your first candidate? Well. As it happens, my first nominee is from around this same part of the saga. Okay. Uh, that that episode you just mentioned with Indridi going off and killing Thorsten Goldbutton. Right. Now, the reason Goldbutton has to die is that Thorbjörg swore various oaths to avenge her brother Horth, right? Something of a hobby with her. She's been doing it since <laughs> she was five. Yes. Uh, but since no one told Thorsten about that, he was the only one willing or dumb enough to kill Horth. So, Thorbjörg first stabs her husband to punish him for being part of the conspiracy to kill Horth, then tells him that the price of peace in their marriage will be the head of Thorsten Goldbutton. Indridi has to travel in secret to Thorsten's farm, lie in wait for him, cut him down, take his head, and report the killing. All of this is at least an implicit violation of his oaths to the other conspirators. But after all that, when he brings Thorsten's severed head home to Thorbjörg, she takes it, then says, actually, I don't care about it when it's off the body. (laughs) (laughs) So good. I I like that acidic uh, dismissiveness. Uh, And the fact that it's reported speech in the narrative makes it that much more dismissive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, uh, what else we got? That's a great one. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, my second one comes from Horth. um, And he's not known, I think, for having a great sense of humor or even an ounce of wit, but I do like the turn of phrase the author gives him when all of the home dwellers are just piling onto that ferry with Kjartan, who's promised them uh, freedom after they get to shore. Um, But Horth knows that they're heading for what he suspects is certain death. Mm. And that's when Horth says, I'm quite happy that they'll all discover how loyal Kjartan is to them, but I expect they'll be less cheerful by the end of the day. See, now mm. there's that sardonic saga wit I love so much. Yeah, I mean, it's not hilarious, but it, it fills the bill for notable witticism. It certainly does. All right, uh, do you have another one? Yeah, and uh, once again, we're we're mining for gold in the same veins here. Uh, well, as we said, there's not a whole lot of choice in this category. Right, now this is the, the moment shortly after Horth predicts a less cheerful future for his friends. Mm-hmm. When Horth himself has been captured after his runner-up bloodshed performance in splitting Kjartan in half. As the conspirators gather around Horth and his men, Horth's brothers-in-law, Indridi and Elugi the Red, bind his hands. And as they do, Horth says, You're tying rather firmly now, brother-in-law. And Indridi responds, You taught me that when you tried to burn me in my house. (laughs) I mean, that's a fair response. (laughs) It is. Uh, But then Elugi, the husband of Horth's older sister Thurid, says to Indridi, the husband of the younger sister Thorbjörg, Well, Horv doesn't have good brothers-in-law, but of course he doesn't deserve to. Mm-hmm. And I have to tip my cap to that. Uh, that's exactly the kind of understated dry wit that I appreciate in the sagas. Yeah. Uh, so 
I mean, that's what we got, Andy. It's not a full cupboard, but there's there's certainly something in the there's cupboard. There's some scraps. Uh, what are we if thinking? I, if I'm a mouse, I'm I'm happy with what I'm there seeing you go. here. There you go. But if I'm Mother Hubbard's dog, I'm not super thrilled. <laughs> no, no. But uh, you know what? I I am a big fan of Thorbjorg's line. Uh, I don't care about it when it's off the body. That one I don't is. Care about when it's off the body. It's great. I mean, the the context is good. The expression's yep. great. Uh, that for me is a real winner. And I have to say, I again, I'm not necessarily the hugest fan of this particular author uh, in terms of his style. Yeah. Uh, but I I think reporting that as speech rather than having her say it really adds a little fill up there. Yeah. Right. That it's not it's not important at all to her. Right. She just, I mean, you can almost picture her sort of flinging it over to the midden heap yes. uh, and not giving it another thought. Yeah, exactly. Well, didn't the, we see the, that? Wasn't that in, oh, man, there was a saga where someone brought a head. It was probably an ale yep. saga, right? Uh, it depends on what happens after to the head. You have to give me more. Someone's <laughs> the sagas, Andy. You it, can't it, just it, say somebody brings a head and leave it, it at It's that. either in y'all saga or ale saga, but someone needs to be avenged and they bring the head of, of the dude to the mother. And the mother looks at it and says, uh, something, I forget what she says. That's but Gretter. Like, That's Gretter. Is it in Gretter? Oh, yes. It's the, yes. Okay. So go ahead. Do you remember it? How does that go? No, that she essentially, uh, she's not impressed, right? They bring her, her son's head and she just kind of shrugs and pretends it doesn't matter to her. Ah, yeah. that That's the one. Yeah. Are you with me though that uh, Thorbjorg deserves the prize for this one? Oh, I absolutely agree. Excellent. Uh, Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, in a stronger in a stronger written saga, this might not be the winner, but in this saga, this is good stuff. There's an interesting pattern developing here. I don't know if you noticed this. If Which you, is if you look at our uh, nickname section, who mm-hmm. won? Uh, Helga the Earl's daughter. Helga the Earl's daughter. And if we look at our notable witticism section, who won? Well, that'd be Thorbjorg just now. Yeah, it's very interesting. <laughs> well, and if you look at our best bloodshed, I believe that was Thorbjorg Katla ripping the, That's uh, right. the throat out. This is a, a saga for the ladies. Uh, I think we're, a pattern is developing here. Uh, we'll see I if it continues it in our next section. Oh, glory. So now we move from awards for the best this saga offers to its worst. Uh, we have to choose someone from this saga to outlaw from Iceland for the rest of our journey. And this time, we've actually got an embarrassment of riches to work with. Yes, we really do. We we don't decide winners in advance in these categories, but we do compare lists of candidates. And this time out, we both agreed that pretty much every man with a speaking role in this saga is really a candidate for outlawry. I mean, you know, that, that sounds hyperbolic, but honestly, it's really just bollock, <laughs> uh, which I guess makes sense for a saga about a band of criminals, really. I know, it kind of does. <laughs> uh, so if your favorite candidate for outlawry didn't make the list... Please know that we agree, whoever it is, should absolutely be outlawed too. Yes, we, we couldn't spend an hour just recounting the crimes committed by the various people in the saga. There are too many. No. I mean, that would basically be us recounting the entire yes. plot again. Go, go back and listen uh, to the first three episodes. Yeah, yeah. Already did that once. Uh, so instead, let's just briefly retrace the ignominious careers of our outlawry finalists. Okay. Andy, I'm going to start us off with a couple of figures who might not immediately be obvious choices given how many options we had. Because I want to go to the generation before Horror than his friends. I want to talk about Torvi and Grimkel. Mm-hmm. Two men who let their personal animosity lead them into some seriously questionable moral quagmires. Are there are there clear-cut moral quagmires? Wouldn't a moral... Possibly not. Quagmire? <laughs> no time for that now. All right. The court calls Torvi Valbrinson to the defense. Ooh. I think we should at least look at Tori for Outlawry. Uh, he's an antagonist for much of the saga, and not just a Horth. Mm-hmm. He's antagonistic to almost everyone he interacts with, at any point. 
He defies his father, conspires with his sister on multiple occasions against their father and his sister's marriage. He tries really hard to kill his infant niece for yes. no reason other than to spite his brother-in-law. He then gives baby Thorbjörg away to a poor family as a way to embarrass her father. Later, he tries to steal Grimkel's property after Grimkel dies and has to be threatened into giving Hor of his rightful inheritance. And then he leads the fight against the home dwellers, which I admit was a bunch of criminals, but his solution to the problem, tricking them and then beheading them all, wasn't especially honorable. No, not a nice man all around, but I think that whole tries to kill his baby niece out of spite, that one, that's a pretty strong argument for outlawing him. I agree, and I think in a lot of sagas that might be enough. Uh, now, since I proposed Torvi, I thought we should talk about Grimkel as well. I think there's a weaker argument for outlawing Grimkel, but I didn't want to let him off the hook completely. Mm-hmm. He's really just someone we don't have sympathy for and aren't meant to have sympathy for. He gets up to various kinds of nastiness, but in terms of actual crimes, he's mainly just a deadbeat dad. Yeah. Uh, he outsources his three-year-old son to Grim the Short's house and then more or less forgets about him. Remember that uh, Horth wasn't even invited to his own sister's wedding. Yes. Uh, he doesn't bother lifting a finger to save his infant daughter from a pauper's life. Uh, well, she, never to be to, fair, she was already tainted by having been dragged around by a vagabond. Right. So why would you want her in your home? No, exactly. Uh, now, Grimkel won't ever sip mead from a number one dad mug, but no. he's not really a criminal. So uh, I think he's out of the running unless unless you want to make a strong case for him. But I really do think there's a case to be made against Torvi. I mean, I, I can understand why you'd want to consider those two. But I, in in legal sense, neither of them really do anything mm-hmm. illegal. Uh, they're just grumpy and hard to deal with. And even trying to expose the child, I think the saga at least makes the case that um, it was try- mm-hmm. they tried to expose it right away. Um, that failed. Then it was named. And once it's named, he doesn't try to follow through with that anymore. So Right. And Uh, here in other sagas, we've also seen that idea that um, while it's not illegal to expose a baby, there's a kind of uh, social condemnation that goes on. definitely. There's censure from your neighbors, but that's not the same thing as being actually against the law. Exactly, yeah. So I want to think about some of our more despicable characters that do break Mm -hmm. the law. Uh, People like Thorgeir Beltbeard. You want to outlaw Beltbeard? I do. I challenge you to name one specific crime. Committed by Thorgir Beltbeard. Okay, well, when we're introduced to him, we're told that he's already an outlaw, so... Uh, what did he do? I, something bad, I think. <laughs> I mean, uh, Robin Hood might disagree with you, but keep going. Uh, then a bit later, we're told that of all the men on Gersholm, Thorgir Beltbeard was one of the worst because he was always suggesting criminal deeds and urging all kinds of outrages, so... Objection, hearsay. <laughs> Those may be damning words, but it's still awfully vague. And he definitely participates in the raid. So, yeah, uh, that's <laughs> Thorgeir Beltbeard. I, I mean, I'm being facetious here. Obviously, he's a criminal. But uh, we can do better than that, Andy. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I have someone better in mind. Uh, how about Helgi Sigmundersen? Ooh. The hapless son of the vagabond who took care of Thorbjörg as an infant. Mm. Everyone hates him, even though he's somehow <laughs> allowed to go on all of Horth's adventures. Yeah, now we're getting into something a little better. And one could argue that had he not killed Sigurd, the son of Auth, over those wandering mares, well, Horth and the home dwellers might never have formed their outlaw band. Mm-hmm. So in addition to participating in all of the home dwellers' crimes, Helgi is actually the spark that got the whole thing going. It's not bad. 
but ultimately, Helgi is a bumbling fool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we can do even better. Oh, I, I think so, too. And I've got one more candidate that I think you'll really like. But <laughs> why don't you tell us who else you think we should consider? Well, I mean, if we're going to start delving into the home dwellers, we have to talk about Gear Grimson. Yes. Uh, Gear is Horth's right-hand man, his closest advisor, and his brother-in-arms. And he uses all three of those positions to lead Horth into some of the worst behavior we have seen in the sagas. I realize that Helgi's pretty bad, but Gear kills the Queen of Norway's treasurer, goes on multiple food raids that could turn onto killing sprees, and is so essential to establishing the island retreat of the outlaws that it gets named after him, yes. not after Hor. I think that's really interesting. It is called Gearsholm. It suggests to me that in the culture, there's a lot more going on with Gear than we're led to believe from the saga. Right, right. That to whatever degree this saga reflects uh, an historical event, Horth may not have been the main figure in that event. Yeah. Uh, oh, by the way, and at one point, uh, Gear does argue in favor of burning nearly the entire power structure of the region to death in their homes. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is a strong yeah, candidate. Yeah, that is a pretty damning activity on his part. Uh, um, okay, yeah, I mean, Gear is there. He's right near the center of all the activities. You're right about that. But uh, I think there's a character closer to the center of this whole mess that we should really seriously consider. In fact, I like the way you're talking, this guy is the nucleus around which the entire saga is built. Yeah, I thought you might be heading in that direction. Mm-hmm. You're talking about outlawing Horth, the eponymous character of the saga. Indeed, I am. You know, I wanted to like Horth. I really did. And I honestly, I think <laughs> one, one thing that's clever about this author is he, he almost challenges you to, to go with yeah. him and see just how far you're willing to go with Horth, right? <laughs> but in the end, there's not much to work with. Horth mm-hmm. is, if you really think about it, cantankerous from the beginning, just like his father. Yeah. Just look at how he treats his brother-in-law, Ilugi, the first time he meets him. Right. If I remember correctly, he insults him by rejecting Ilugi's gift, which was clearly meant to be an offer of friendship. Right, right. He rejects the shield that Ilugi offered and asks for something better. Right. I think he says something like, uh, my foster father Grimm has plenty of pieces of wood. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's what he says. Oh, it's so insulting. Uh, so Ilugi then gives Why him... Why didn't we mention that in the clever witticisms? You know what? You're right. That is a really good one. And that, well, I don't know if it's better, but it is, that's a good one. <laughs> but anyway, so Ilugi gives him a ring as a token of friendship, only to have Horde then quickly pass it off to his sister, who then swears a blood oath of vengeance as if uh, Ilugi's going to kill him one day, which, you know. I mean, they're a heck of a family. Yeah. Uh, If we're going to be sticklers about his crimes as we build up to his big one, we could take issue with his raid of Soti's burial mound. Well, I mean, what about that? It's problematic, though. Nothing serious, but he does step over his future brother-in-law's claim uh, Mm. and and those efforts that he's supposed to make on the raid. Yeah, that's true. As Soti said... Horth had no real cause to raid the mound. I mean, okay, that that's true. But he wouldn't be the first warrior to arrive in a new place and take advantage of an opportunity to slay a monster for some buried treasure, would he? But yeah, that, that's okay. Y- your point is that he's a brash and proud man who doesn't mind stepping over others to get what he wants. Yes, exactly. Which is fine. I think that's right. But of course... Honestly, none of that really matters since we've got enough on Horde to send him away uh, without a deep character study. You know, we don't need to look yeah. into his his youth or his uh, his behaviors. I, I don't think anyone will have forgotten Horde's explosive encounter with Auth, father of the slain Sigurd. Mm-hmm. When he discovers that Auth has spoken to Tori about Sigurd's death, well, 
Horth flies into a rage, chopping Aoth in two, slaying a farmhand who witnessed the whole thing, and then, as if that wasn't enough, he ran around setting all the buildings on fire. Yeah, because of that, two women die. Yeah. Uh, it's not a great look for our saga hero. No, it's not. And given our audience's reaction on social media and email, I can tell you that most everyone turned on Horth after that. Mm-hmm. Rightly so. And he's not done. Uh, in addition to the various raids on local farms, Horth specifically targets the farms of his brothers-in-law repeatedly, mm-hmm. right, gets into fights with them, even attempts to burn Indridi and his own sister Thorbjorg in their farmhouse after a raid goes poorly. Yeah, he does all of that. So I ask you, how can we not outlaw this guy? Oh, I mean, I don't think there was ever any doubt, John. Horth Grimkelson <laughs> is deserving of full outlawry. Uh-huh. The courts of Sagathing, they don't look kindly on his ilk. I agree. So for all his heroic potential, that means that Horth Grimkelson joins the ranks of what? Uh, Henthorer, Eric the Red, and Thorhall Aylhood as titular characters who have earned themselves the harshest penalty that the Sagathing law can enforce. That's right. So pack your bags, Horth, and gather your crew of misfits. Please bring all of them with you, because it's time <laughs> for all of you to leave right mm-hmm. now. And believe me, we, we really are offering you this chance to leave. We're not, yes. we're not going to bring you across in a ferry and then surprise you with <laughs> no such chicanery from beheading. us. No, no. <laughs> now, John, we have just highlighted the bad deeds of nearly every major character in the saga. Who the heck do we have left uh-huh. for Thingman? Well... Thing man. All right. Now that the unpleasant but necessary duty of outlawry is behind us, we have the much happier task of choosing Thingmen to join our halls. Andy, I got to pick first last time, to my delight, and so the honor is yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, given that we gave uh, Horde they richly deserved kicking off the island, you're going to have to look elsewhere for your new Thingmen. Who's it going to be? Well, now... I'm going to say, given that most of the characters of the saga are either despicable or at least undesirable, you'd think that the Thingman section would be a hard one for me this time. <laughs> and I'm going to admit, I was nervous going second when we picked Thingman from Ale Saga, but mm-hmm. I felt confident that you couldn't stop yourself from taking Ale, and I would get my man Aaron Bjorn. I mean, can we, can we not, can we not I'm politicize not, I'm not at this point, sir? I'm talking about my experience. Can I share my yeah. experience with you, please? Yeah. I, I feel pretty confident that your experience is a load of nonsense meant to justify something, but go on. It isn't. All I'm trying to say is I was uh, nervous, but it worked out the way that I wanted it to, to sure work out. Sure it did. And I considered it a victory in the Thingman uh-huh. category, though uh-huh. I know you're free to disagree. That's totally yeah. fine. That's fine. But I also felt that it was important for me to have first pick in Horth Saga since I had never read it before, and I figured that... <laughs> Going first in this smaller saga would allow me to grab Horth without much stress. Right. That was and be- then you met him. That was before I read the saga. <laughs> and as I got to know the characters, I began to wonder, like, who the hell I could reasonably choose from this saga full of mm-hmm. despicable and undesirable characters. I mean, from the very start, the only character that I felt any connection to was a little tiny baby girl named Thorbjörg. <laughs> and I, I, I was I was touched by the story of her youth, and I really enjoyed that part of the saga. She was passed around from family to family, rejected by mm-hmm. everyone, until she landed in the arms of Grim the Short, foster son of her mother, Signy. And as the saga progressed, Thorbjörg slipped into the background, but she stuck in my mind. And with the exception of her sworn oath to avenge Horth, we, we never really see her much 
in the saga until the end. And as the final chapters of the saga laid themselves out, well, it became clearer and clearer to me that there was only one choice for Thingman in the saga. I watched in admiration as she accepted her marriage to Indri, despite her apparent affections for Geir. She's a dutiful person who knows how to control her emotion. That is always a good trait for a saga character, and especially for a good Thingman. I was impressed with how she commanded respect from the men who were plotting against her brother, and the fear she inspired in them when she crashed the party and once again swore to bring down any man who dared to strike her brother down. And if there was any doubt that the men truly feared Thorbjörg, well, one need only watch as they fumbled over each other to not be the first one to attack a very clearly weakened Horth. But her actions after the death of Horth truly sealed the deal. This incredible woman not only fulfilled her oath to avenge her brother, she cleverly saved the lives of her brother's wife and children by carefully threading the rules of marriage and culture into a promise of safety and provisions for them from a man who had no interest in seeing them survive. Mm -hmm. And in the saga's final report, we learned that 24 men were killed in vengeance for Horth. We're told his sister, Thorbjörg, was involved in the killing of nearly all of them. She's a one-woman powerhouse. And without doubt, the most impressive character in the whole of the saga of Horth and the Home Dwellers. So I want to welcome to my distinguished Hall of Thingman, Thorbjorg. We have a place of honor for you here at our table, and we're eager for you to join. Welcome aboard. Well, Andy, I can't really argue with your choice. Although, I have to say, for me, there were two equally impressive candidates. I think I know where you're headed, and I agree. Uh, It would have been a coin flip for me if I were going first, but you flipped the coin for me by choosing Thorbjorg. Andy, there are two women in this saga who take up the responsibility for avenging Horth. Both do their part, Mm -hmm. one in Iceland and one moving from Gearsholm to Iceland to Norway. Both are impressive. But I'm going with Helga the Earl's daughter, and I'll explain why. I think I know why. I like it. What sets Helga apart for me is that we see another side to her. She shares the desire for vengeance with Thorbjörg and sends men from Norway later to seek that revenge. But we also see her decisive actions during the massacre of the outlaws, as well as her quick thinking in escaping the island and getting herself and her sons to safety at Thorbjörg's farm. And let's not overlook the physical stamina and feat of endurance required for Helga to swim from island to mainland with her young son in her arms, and then go back and bring her other son safely to shore. I honestly think our retelling of this saga, and even our judgment section, does a disservice to Helga. And I'm choosing her in part to create an opportunity to redress that injustice. Mm, You'd say that now. Well, no, Helga doesn't have a great moment of bloodshed or a clever witticism to her credit. Mm -hmm. But if we had a category for the most impressive act of physical daring, Helga's swim is a winner. If we awarded most famous moment in the saga, Helga again. Well, who chooses that? She's about the most admirable figure. That would be Jonas Christensen, by the way, chooses that. (laughs) as well as almost everybody else talks about this saga. Uh, Now, I would have to say that this is the most admirable person I can find in this saga that is otherwise full of dishonorable people and petty criminals, Mm -hmm. excepting, of course, your choice, also an honorable one. Uh, Helga will be a great addition to my team and might even be a positive role model to some of my unrulier thingmen. And since I also took Al Vestin's daughter in Gisla Saga, the two of them will have plenty to talk about. I'm sure they will. Al's been (laughs) hanging out in there with Gretir and Snorri Uh, and all these other idiots. uh, Helga, the Earl's daughter, I'm delighted to invite you to my hall. I love it. Great choice. 
I think this is one of those that we're not going to argue with each other about. No, uh, I think I think we're both very, very pleased with both of our choices. Yeah, I think but we both did well there. And I think we picked the the very best of the saga, which to me, again, is fascinating that we have a saga where almost every category, except for the bad one, uh, women have won. <laughs> That's really <laughs> right, unusual. No, it's interesting. You don't think of this. I mean, we you know, when we talk about Eric the Red saga, we talk about how it centers the stories of women and the lives of women as part of its narrative. And this saga really doesn't get talked about that way. Right. Uh, but it really very much frames its story, especially in the later chapters, through the experiences of the women who are not just left behind by the deaths of the uh, the home dwellers, but then take control over what happens next. Yeah. Well, it's, it's such an interesting thing in this saga that, I mean, we do get the experiences of women to some degree in the early stages. I think that story of Thorbjorg um, mm-hmm. being an undesirable child um, is is really telling. But man, most sagas, when the main character is killed, shift to the sons and the story of their vengeance. Um, yep. So it's, it stays in the realm of the male. But this saga shifts entirely to the realm of the female and their their actions and their experience, their feelings, yep. all the things that are going on there. And that's really where the, the saga ends itself. It, it, it ends by saying Thorbjorg was involved in all of these men's death. Doesn't describe the deaths to us, but focuses yep. on Thorbjorg's role in all those things and shows us how she did right. it. Right. And, of course, to stand up for my choice, yeah. uh, Helga sending people and her son over from Norway to help conduct those killings. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So great uh, job. All right. I think- but I think we are, Andy, I think we're moving ahead to something else, uh, which is, of course, our next category. Yes. Final, Final rating. rating. And now the time has come for us to offer our final ratings on the saga of Hor than the Home Dwellers. The name of this saga rolls pleasantly off the tongue, John, but what do we make of its content and substance? <laughs> it's tradition that the person who chose second in Thingman gets to go first in final ratings. So, mm-hmm. Johnny, what do you make of this saga? All right. Um, I honestly think this is probably one of the toughest sagas we've read to evaluate. Uh, I would agree with because that. Because it's so... It's so clearly part of a specific subset, the Outlaw Sagas, and it's also very clearly not as good as the other Outlaw Sagas in a number of fairly obvious ways. It lacks the tension and social complexities of Gisli's Saga. It lacks the pathos and world-building of Gretter's Saga. It doesn't have the finely-tuned moral dilemmas of Gisli or the beautifully compelling side narratives of Gretter. And it's saddled with a protagonist who's much less sympathetic than either one of them. Mm -hmm. I'm always an advocate of evaluating each saga on what it's trying to do rather than on its literary context. But in this case, we're dealing with an author who is deliberately writing into a tradition and knows it. So I feel justified in thinking through the lens of the other outlaw sagas. Andy, when we read Gisli's saga, you chose Gisli Sersen as a thingman. Yeah. I chose Greta Esmundersen in his saga. More questionable, but yeah. In Horth's saga, we agreed to jettison the outlaw hero from Iceland before it even came time to choose Thingman. Nah, we don't want to touch him. (laughs) Uh, Honestly, the only thing about Horth I find at all compelling is his odd and not always relevant ability to see things as they truly are. Mm -hmm. The idea of a doomed man who sees the deceit and errors around him and is ultimately powerless to stand against his fate is really interesting. Ooh, I like that. And in a different story, that might have really caught me up, but that's not where this saga's focus is. Instead, the meat of the saga, see, I, and I think we could have had a better saga had it been the focus, mm-hmm. 
but instead the meat of this saga is a highly literary collection of set pieces about how outlaws steal things. And the answer is, they mostly do it incompetently. Uh, and again, if this were the story of a man who wrestles with his moral sense while being forced by circumstance into leading a gang of criminals, I would buy a ticket to that show every time. But Horth's mental compass and his moral compass doesn't stop him from behaving pretty horrifically most of the time. Uh, whether, as we said, whether he's chopping down the grieving father of a man that Horth's friend killed, whether he's robbing farmers or massacring mainlanders for the crime of wanting to keep their own stuff. By the time he's making a spirited attempt to burn his sister and her family to death in their farmhouse, I think we can dismiss the idea that this author is trying to present a morally complex figure. Instead, this saga's best qualities come only in its last few chapters, when we see the spiraling revenge cycles that encompass an entire generation of the district and lead to two dozen killings, most of them orchestrated by Thorbjörg, Helga, or Helga Sambjörn. Those are three characters whose stories don't really come into full focus until the final chapters, and although I want to know more about all of them, it's too little too late. This isn't a terrible saga. It has episodes that are really quite interesting, but it doesn't reach anywhere close to the heights of the genre that it so badly wants to be a part of. So I'm giving this one a six. Hmm. Very interesting. You want to see? I'm going to unfold my... Now, I know you wrote down what you thought I was going to, I'm going to unfold say. my card, and I'm going to show you this so, number, which I hope you can see. Look at this card. Oh, you wrote 5.5. I did. You got very, very close indeed. I did get very close. Oh, very interesting. Um, I think you've, you've, you've done a good job of capturing some of my feelings about the saga. Rather well, actually. I think, yeah. especially when you're, you're kind of listing it sh- some of its shortcomings. Uh, I agree. This is a good saga, but not a great one. I think it does mm-hmm. a nice job of complicating the outlaw saga genre or the idea of the heroic outlaw. I, and this is where I think we differ. Now, we spoke a few times through the summary episodes about how Horth's saga uh, compared to other outlaw narratives, be they Icelandic or otherwise. And to me, the saga seems, at least at first, to be guiding us down a very familiar path where the hero's life will be disrupted by an injustice perpetrated by a rival. And I think mm. the author wants the, the audience to be following down and, and expecting a certain kind of story. One expects Horth to be unjustly sentenced to outlawry and then to fight against the corrupt authorities who cast him out. And as an outlaw hero, he would amass around himself other outlaws and clever rogues, and together they'd build a just and good society in the wilds, far from the injustices of a civilized society. Or... <laughs> If Horth is to follow the path laid out by Gisli and Grettir, well, his outlawry, would hi- his outlawry would highlight the complexity of the legal system and prompt thoughtful questions about the nature of justice, of right and wrong, and of the evolving social codes and mores of the author's culture. But the author of Horth's saga isn't interested in most of that. Through, <laughs> through Horth, he seems to flip the outlaw genre on its head by asking why we would ever celebrate an outlaw at all. Horde's outlawry is wholly just, and Torvi's suspicions about his character are proven true as he sets about disrupting the peace of the region for years, threatening both the lives and livelihood of the people who live there. But what's truly remarkable about this version of the outlaw story is that no one, with the possible exception of Thorbjorg and Helga, emerges from the saga with clean hands. <laughs> Nearly everyone is exposed as selfish, treacherous, and potentially violent in horrifying ways. This saga reveals the darker side of humanity in a fairly unflinching manner. 
and that makes for a very different kind of experience when reading this one. It's a dark story about a dark world. And for that reason, I admire what this author is attempting, or at least in my interpretation of what he seems to be attempting, but that's, all, you know, that's how it works. Right. As you edge ever further out on that branch. Yeah. So, but I, I really, I want to give it credit for constructing what I think is a morally complex narrative that challenges conventional notions of saga writing and exposes some of the ills of Icelandic society and really of human nature itself. So this isn't, this isn't a fun saga. As we've noted throughout our summary and judgment, it lacks those bits of fun and wit and lightheartedness that makes other sagas pop, even as they tackle serious subjects. I mean, mm-hmm. I honestly, I don't think we've read a more serious saga than Njal's saga. And that one is full of fascinating characters and even an appreciation for life and landscape and loving relationships that develop between people. And as dark as it is, Njal's saga even ends on a positive note of character growth as as a deadly feud ends in forgiveness. And that's beautiful. It's what one of the things that makes Njal's saga such a complex and beautiful narrative. But Horth's saga is almost nihilistic. It's cynical yes. from start to finish. It's dark. It's unforgiving. It's not a saga I'd recommend for someone looking to wade into this genre of literature. Mm-hmm. That said, I think that's kind of the point. And in that way, it accomplishes a lot. A teenage Andy from the 90s would have scored this one very high (laughs) while probably listening to the album Pornography by The Cure at top volume. Oh, wow. Adult literature professor Andy still appreciates a walk on the goth side now and again. Adult (laughs) literature professor Andy also appreciates the attention that this author paid to female characters, as you described. We don't get Mm -hmm. to see women like Thorbjörg and Helga too often in the sagas. And this one deserves credit for that. But this saga isn't better than Gisli's saga or Greta's saga. It's not as carefully or beautifully written as you've kind of outlined for us, and its characters aren't as engaging. Its episodes aren't as well-developed, though it does have some good ones. And I gave Gisli and Gretcher both nines, and this one's mm-hmm. definitely not a nine. My heart tells me this one is a six, but my mind says it's a seven. Now, I could split the difference and go with a 6.5, but I'm going to fall on my head over my heart on this one. Horth's saga earned a seven from me. Again, not a fun seven by any stretch, but I'm always, I'm not always looking for fun. Most of my favorite authors like Dostoevsky, Camus, Hess, Steinbeck, Vonnegut, they shine brightest when dwelling in the darkness of humanity. And I think that this author deserves some credit for doing something a little different. A seven. I think, I think your, uh, your list of favorite authors probably should have included Stan Lee because you're just showing off right now. (laughs) Stanley, uh, I I don't think I follow your joke there, John. Um, would you like to know, Andy, what I suggested you would say? I would love to know what you uh, thought I would say. Can you read that? He wrote seven point five. Wow, very interesting. You went a little high. You went a little high. Well, not by only by half a point. Um, I had a feeling that you were going to come in higher than me on this one. You you know that I have a tradition of when I sit down to put my final thoughts together of talking myself into that uh, a saga being better than it might be. I think both of us have a tendency. We both want to like sagas. Yes, we do. Um, you know, and again, I, I think I, I was more troubled by the mannered nature of the saga than you were. Mm-hmm. Right? That it's a, it's a saga that is uh, clearly, and in some cases, transparently uh, mimicking other, and in my mind, better literature yeah well that's uh, a that doesn't mean that it doesn't have any any useful components right. or anything interesting about it 
but I think that bothers me more than it bothers yeah, me. Yeah, what's interesting about that to me is that that's the same mindset that creates this artificial divide between the classical and post-classical sagas. And I think sure. we've had this conversation yep. before. Um, these later sagas, I think, to me, end up being extremely fascinating because what I like about them is their attempt to do something slightly different with familiar material. Yeah. And you're looking for a better version of that familiar material. Right. Yeah. Which is an interesting dis- distinction. Excellent. All right. Uh, so a six from me, a seven from Andy. That's a 13 altogether. Puts it right around in the middle of our ratings. Uh, I, all right. I think bad. if you had asked me uh, after episode two where we'd end up, I would have gone lower than that. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And that, my friends, brings us to the end of our journey through the saga of Hor than the Home Dwellers. Excellent. Uh, wait a second. What? What's you what, mentioned just, uh, before we started that we might try to address a few of the remaining runesack letters relevant to this saga. Do you still uh, want to do that or are we uh, – uh, is, well, is it too uh, late? Is it time for Betty Bye? Well, I mean, for me it's fine. For you it's almost midnight. I think we <laughs> should go ahead and, and do it. All right. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's actually a few here that we can address pretty quickly and that will wrap up our kind of Horde saga, yep. existing Horde saga stuff. Yep, let's do it. All right. Sure. So um, – all right. So the first one comes from Celeste Taylor via Gmail. Um, Celeste is actually, she's the one that helped us with the question on how one moves livestock over water back in Ale Saga. Okay, I remember this one. This is a fox, a chicken, and a bag nope. of feed. Nope. Oh, okay. Nope. Uh, it's a scorpion so the answer on a, on is a to, toad, I think, or something. Right. Or a frog. Yeah. Uh, no, the answer is to kill the livestock before loading onto the boat. I remember it. That's the one. Yeah. Yes, yes. And we saw that borne out in this saga, which was great, and we referenced that you know discussion uh but couldn't remember celeste's name but now i remember <laughs> now it's, uh, so anyway celeste popped in again to help us with our question about why the home dwellers hair is twisted up before they're beheaded on the shore she says that the hair especially if it's braided or bunched up over the neck would actually dull the axes because the angle of the blade for cutting skin meat or bone is actually quite different from the angle used for cutting hair hmm. uh, so if she says think about the difference between fabric scissors and paper scissors Cutting paper would dull good fabric scissors, and paper scissors really don't cut fabric very well. I've tried it, and it never works. Right. Um, so she also points out that when cutting the throat of a sheep for slaughter, the hair is always separated and held out of the way to ensure a smooth and quick cut. So while a good axe could undoubtedly slice through a bit of hair and a neck, a good axe wielder will respect his tool by not doing that at all. Mm-hmm. So in short, it's good for the axe wielder, and the axe recipient if the neck is free from any hair when the death blow is coming. Well, I will uh, I will keep that in mind if things ever take a really bad turn for me. And uh, I need to make a decision about that at a moment's notice. That's right. You've got lots of hair to uh, throw around to protect that That's neck. Right. Thank you for the tip, Celeste. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. All right. So here's a quick one. Uh, Michael Gogan uh, contacted us via email with a question about Thord the Cat, the oh. outlaw who joins Horde's band and then promptly gets killed when Gare's ill-fated mission is shrouded in a magical fog. You remember him? Yeah, I have no sympathy for Thor the Cat. Well, Michael wants to know, this is a great question, John. He wants to know if this Thor the Cat is the same one we encounter in Laxdala Saga. Ah, that's a, that's, that's a very interesting question, actually. It is. I thought so, too. Uh, my initial impulse is to say no, mm-hmm. absolutely not the same character, but... That's just a gut feeling based on yeah. relatively nothing. Yeah. Uh, Thord Cat. What do you, what do you uh, think? This is the son of Gudrun Osvastotter. 
Yes, he is. He, yeah, he, his father is Thord, Gudrun's second husband. Um, and right. then he's, I guess, I think he's fostered out to Snorri the Gothi. Yeah. Now, yeah, so he's fostered to Snorri in that story. We don't, we don't actually yeah. find out what happens to Thord Cat in the saga. Uh, right. But uh, if you look at Erbidja's saga, you find that same figure, uh, Thord Cat, is listed among Snorri's sons, not his foster sons. He's actually one is of the. Is that right? Yeah, he's one of the Snorrisons. Um, so. This name, Thord Cat, shows up in three different sagas with three sort of different but potentially connected biographies uh, connected to them. Uh, I don't see any reason to assume that they're all the same figure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but- Thord the Cat, at least in Laxdala Saga, does get involved in some feuding. Yeah. Um, and he even goes after... Uh, what is it? I feel like it's Helgi or something. He goes after some younger person. Yeah. Um, and then he's held back and they say, don't, we're not going to do that because we don't <laughs> want anything terrible to happen here. Right. So they've already like attacked someone else, but this one person, they're like, don't do that. That would be wrong. Right. So maybe Thord the Cat is uh, willing to get involved with something bad. Well, and the problem is that, you know, Thord the Cat in this saga, we really learn nothing about him apart that he exists. He's called Thord the Cat and then he dies. Exactly. And that's largely true in Erebidja Saga as well. He's mentioned only in the final chapter of the saga as one of the many, many, many offspring of Snorri mm-hmm. Gothi. Uh, and so we don't really have enough biographical detail in his other references to link him up or to definitively say that he shouldn't be linked up with the Thor the Cat from Luxdala Saga. Yeah. Uh, of course, I guess it's possible that the author of this saga, who has read many other sagas um decided to grab that character sure. and turn him into an outlaw i don't i don't know right or to yeah or to try to build connections out to other sagas since uh, as we know and i think we mentioned in our first episode uh this saga is actually a an oddly hermetically sealed saga it's not connected to a lot of other sagas through incident or through character mm-hmm. and so uh those those kind of tertiary characters can be a way of kind of creating those links to the existing uh corpus I would argue that he needed to put a little more effort into that if he wanted it to be. Well, I mean, <laughs> but uh, but hey, you got to start somewhere. I I'm gonna have to dock another half a point off. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> We're sliding fast here. All right, so um, here's one more. This is from mm-hmm. our our buddy from Yukon, uh, Will Beal. Um, hey, who Will. Has a, yeah, he's got a comment on Thorbjorg. Um, he says. Uh, this is a, a while ago he said this. Um, actually, it was just a couple days ago. But <laughs> he said, I'm just starting Harvard Saga, and I'm a little behind, but any possibility that Thorbjorg's infant peregrinations are a version of the Constance legend, oh. especially since she's fated to convert but gets passed around by various morally suspect pagans. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that, Johnny? Um, it's interesting. Uh, so the, the Constance legend, if uh, people are familiar with it at all, would most likely be familiar with it from the Canterbury Tales. Uh, Chaucer right. includes this as the Man of Law's tale, the story of Custance, right, who moves from place to place. And the the sort of the repeating theme of her life is that she's put adrift in ships, usually rudderless and often without food, uh, and prays to God to, to bring her safely to shore. And she inevitably finds a new location. Yeah. Um, I think thematically that makes a lot of sense. Uh, as a direct correlation, I don't see evidence for it yeah. uh, because I, this I Thorbjörg, Thorbjörg bounces around in Iceland, but it's not random in any way, right? It's a, uh, it doesn't have the same kind of uh, sense of fate taking a hand. Right? Yeah, I was going to say there's no there's no sense that God's hand is is right. in play here. Um, it, it's also 
it's also if you follow the story all the way through the the only indication that she she has any connection potential connection even with christianity or conversion comes from thorgerd alterbride and and thorgerd alterbride suggests that this this change is going to come over the family mm-hmm. but what's odd and i think we talked about this in the summary episodes and i'm sure will has heard it by now um it never really comes to anything. Thorbjorn right. never converts in this narrative. They never. It's almost like that storyline gets dropped, and that's that's one of the failings of this saga. Is right. Certain things are introduced, but then not followed through. Right. Almost like uh, an episode of Lost, or perhaps Game of Thrones, or this any number a, of other. This is a curious set of uh, similes you're coming up with. Uh, oh. <laughs> well, I think. It uh, makes sense. But to take Will's point, uh, there's certainly. The idea that Thorbjorg alone of the figures in this saga is singled out as a future Christian does suggest that the that God may be at play in her early yeah. deliverance from her very difficult circumstances. Uh, that's never made explicit in the saga in any way, but certainly if we're looking at, at it as a potential correlation to Gustin's story, that would make some sense. And uh, you could see a similar kind of thing with um, Gudrun in uh, the stories of uh, of the of the Vinland sagas, right? With the uh, mm-hmm. Greenlander saga and Eric the Red saga. She's a, a woman that is kind of, I wouldn't say passed around necessarily, but she has multiple husbands and goes through some tr- horrific events um, on her path to becoming a very significant character in mm-hmm. the story of Iceland's Christianity. Right. So I think I think while um, while the direct the direct uh, reference isn't necessarily there, uh, the idea that this reflects a kind of broader narrative, right? A a storytelling trope in which um, Christians, especially uh, women, Christian women, are often in this position of putting their fate in the hands of God, who then delivers them from whatever trials they face. Uh, to that degree, there's certainly a correlation there. Yeah, I would agree with that. All right, so I, I'm going to try this again, John. Mm-hmm. And that, that, my friends, <laughs> brings us to the end of our journey through the saga of Hor than the Home Dwellers. Uh, wait a second, Andy. No, 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 no. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope you've all enjoyed it as much as we have. Uh, this was a surprising saga in a lot of ways, even if it wasn't exactly what I might have expected. That's part of the fun. It, it is. It is. Now, if you want to share your thoughts about this saga or indeed any of our judgments, feel free to get in touch with us here on Twitter. Where we are at Saga Thing Pod. Right. Or on Facebook and Instagram. At Saga Thing Podcast. Or I suppose through email. Where we are Saga Thing Podcast at gmail.com. Or I think we have a website, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. Right. Or you can hide a note somewhere in Washington, D.C. with a series of clues, each more fiendish and clever than the last, hiding a vast conspiracy that only Tom Hanks and or Nick Cage can unravel. Ooh, can we get both of them? I mean, look. I mean, that's the direction uh, I want to go. The problem is, again, one of us has to be Nick Cage. <laughs> well, all right. Uh, <laughs> that's lovely. We are going to be back. Oh, I thought. See, I thought that Nick Cage and Tom Hanks were going to bring us the the message. I think that but we're just hiring them. We're just. We're just. Yeah. I see. We're outsourcing this. I think they'll okay. contact us. I like. And it. Say, hey, we've got a message for you. Um. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we are going to be back soon to start the trek through the saga of Barth, the Snowfell God. This is an odd one. Uh, it is very, very different from anything we've read before. It sure is. You know, we've seen trolls in our sagas before, uh, but this one dives deep into the world of trolls, and you're not going to want to miss it. 
Or now, uh, to give them time to prepare, uh, where can people go if they want to get a copy of this one? Well, if you don't have the five-volume set of Sagas of Icelanders, you can you get yourself... Get you should get that, first of all. But <laughs> you can also get yourself a copy of Barth Saga in the short collection called Icelandic Histories and Romances by Ralph O'Connor. Mm. It's available for less than $30. It's still in print, so that's out there. Um, and I only just found this one, so I can't really vouch for it. But there is a PDF translation by Lynn Ewing online. Um, it was part of her master's thesis at the University of Saskatchewan in 1987. Hmm. So it's probably typed on a typewriter, if you can imagine. I, um, I can absolutely imagine, Andy, since uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> is, that is my experience in college part. as well. Yeah, well, you can find it out there on the interwebs if you look. But I think you have to type in the Icelandic name uh, in order to get it. Um, right. You have to type it with a typewriter. Uh, yeah. When we get closer to that one, I'm going to I'll tweet out a link to mm-hmm. that, that one if, if you need it. Excellent. Uh, well, there you go. Uh, and I'm sure there are some other options we don't know about. Yeah, I feel like there's another one out there, uh, but I don't recall what it is or where to find it. So well, it's a, on your it's own. It's a mission for you, fair listeners. Let there us know you if go. you're aware of a, an English translation of the saga of Bar the Snowfell God. Wonderful. Well, that does it for us. As always, thanks for listening. Bye for now. Andy, I think we're moving ahead to something else, uh, which is, of course, our next category. Yes. Final ratings, I believe it's called. I, I was I was setting up for that, but your your beautifully timed yes <laughs> did absolutely nothing to derail that. It wasn't a penny on the railroad track of my thought at all. <laughs> <laughs>